It's February 20th, 2021. In Washington Heights, New York, a crowd swarms into one of the city's most historic buildings, the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial Center. Previously known as the Audubon Ballroom, it was within these very walls where one of the nation's most renowned civil rights leaders, Malcolm X, was brutally gunned down. His murder took place almost 56 years ago to the day. Tensions are high tonight. Not only is Malcolm X's assassination on everyone's mind, but it also happens to be the eve of Derek Chauvin's trial. The police officer convicted of killing George Floyd. The room is packed with the city's top lawyers, journalists, and camera crews. The uncomfortable, emotive issue of racially motivated violence weighs heavily in the air. From within this electrically charged, restless crowd, a man emerges. Smartly dressed in a black suit, wearing rectangular glasses and carrying a letter, he makes his way onto the stage. The man's name is Reggie Wood, and he possesses information that has the potential to change history. Reggie taps the microphone lightly and clears his throat. He looks around nervously at the star-studded crowd before him. He carefully holds up a piece of paper encased in a plastic envelope for the audience to see. It's a letter. Reggie explains that this letter was written by his late cousin, Ray Wood, who died last year. Ray was an undercover detective for the NYPD in the 1960s. And with his final words, he spilled secrets about his past life. Ray initially penned the letter back in 2011 when first diagnosed with cancer. He had lived another nine years, but fearing retribution, he kept his secret safe and the letter, his confession, remained sealed. That is, until now. Reggie clears his throat. He explains that Ray lived in constant fear for 46 years, worried what the FBI and NYPD would do to him if he told the dark secrets that he held that helped destroy Black leaders and Black power organizations. Reggie waves the letter up to the crowd, emphasizing the importance of the historic artifact. The impact Reggie's words are about to have cannot be overstated. They'll undermine a nationwide police investigation, prove the innocence of two incarcerated men, confirm frightening suspicions about the country's governance, and humiliate some of America's most prestigious institutions. This letter, Reggie announces, details his, the FBI, and the NYPD's involvement in the assassination of Malcolm X. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Ray Wood, of the words he wrote as he lay dying. It's about the race riots that ripped through America in the 1960s and the police's desperate efforts to quell the violence. It's about a young NYPD officer caught between his community and his country and his role in a terrorist plot allegedly designed by the FBI. It's about the actions of one man which would eventually lead to the assassination of Malcolm X. 
I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On hearing the words of Reggie Wood, the crowd within the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial Center falls silent. If what he says is true, then he is implicating the American government in one of history's most high-profile political assassinations, a murder which was allegedly solved 56 years ago, but has been the subject of fierce controversy ever since. Is it possible that the dying words of his cousin Ray, a former NYPD cop, could finally provide answers? Will the decades of suspicion and conspiracy be brought to an end? Reggie Wood certainly thinks so. He believes that his cousin Ray's deathbed confession explains one of America's greatest unsolved crimes, an unspeakable violation against the civil rights movement. The question of who really killed Malcolm X? The following is Ray Wood's story. Ray Wood is born in South Carolina, 1933. He's orphaned at a young age and is taken in by his aunt and uncle. Little more is known about his early life, although some reports suggest that he enjoys close relationships with his cousins. Growing up in the 1930s in the Southern US, Ray lives through a period of great change. Although like most black children of his age, he faces systematic prejudices at every turn, Ray finds a way to escape. As a tall, muscular teenager and natural athlete, he becomes a high school football star. Upon graduating, seeking gainful employment in the service of his country, he joins the U.S. Air Force. He's just 18 years old. Flying is a job Ray instantly falls in love with, and he'll spend the next four years piloting planes for his country. Although we don't know the precise details of Ray's flying career, it's likely that he sees active duty. His time in the Air Force spans from 1951 to 1955, overseeing conflict in Korea and the start of the Vietnam War. Ray Wood is no doubt a brave and patriotic individual. 
Also, he's clearly good at following orders, a quality which will be crucial to the next stage of his life. In 1955, after four years as a pilot, Ray is honorably discharged. He moves to New York City, where he searches for a new vocation. He works in bars and clubs at various oil and gas companies and even enrolls in NYU for a semester, but nothing sticks. After nearly a decade of this, Ray is in his early 30s and looking to make something of himself. So in 1964, he decides to put his service background to good use. Whether due to a sense of duty or simply seeking a stable career, Ray applies to join America's most famous police force, the NYPD. And to Ray's surprise, the NYPD are keen to hire him right away. It seems they have a special role they believe he's perfectly suited to. Working as an undercover detective. The NYPD explains to Ray that they want him to join their Bureau of Special Services, also known as BOSS, a top-secret police squad designed to infiltrate groups of political activists, specifically Black civil rights groups. Officially, its aim is to gain exclusive information on any illegal activity from within these supposedly radical organizations. Many have since claimed their role was to spy and report back on all activities, including those which are perfectly legal. Some have gone further, saying the true purpose of these spies was to sabotage and agitate from within, to act as provocateurs. Is Ray excited by this new opportunity or simply grateful to have found employment? We can't be sure, but we do know Ray hastily accepts the offer. On April 18th, 1964, he joins the top secret bureau and embarks on a double life. Given the nature of this role, one can imagine the enormous strain placed on Ray. His job requires him to befriend Black activists, protest alongside them, and commit wholeheartedly to the civil rights movement. All while secretly working for a police force many consider to be part of the problem. And at a time when social divisions are at their most volatile, Ray Wood is placed in an exceedingly dangerous position. The role Ray is performing would be controversial in any time or era. But in 1964, the U.S. seems to be on a precipice, and tensions are running higher than ever. It's also the reason police forces are so desperate to infiltrate radical groups. Black Americans all across the country are sick and tired of being treated as second-class citizens. Twice as likely to be unemployed as their white compatriots, Economic inequality forces many to live in urban slums, which are quickly becoming regarded as ghettos. Many Black children still face segregated education, and countless families live below the poverty line. The groundswell of protest is building, and soon it will spread to major cities all across the nation. The civil rights movement is a powder keg, ready to explode. And the match will first be struck right here in Harlem, New York City, where Ray Wood is now working undercover. On Thursday, July 11th, 1964, an off-duty Manhattan police officer shoots and kills a black teenager, 15-year-old James Powell. Almost immediately, the outraged public responds. 
Leading the charge in the days afterwards is the Congress of Racial Equality, known as CORE, one of New York's leading activist groups. Among their influential leadership committee is an energetic graduate student and CORE Bronx Chapter Housing Chair, Ray Woodall, alias Raymond Wood. CORE are committed to peaceful protest, but the march they organize on the NYPD's 28th Precinct in Harlem soon erupts into violence. Protesters and police clash as bricks and bottles are thrown. Before long, rioting breaks out on the streets of New York. There's looting, vandalism, and police cars are set on fire. As police horses and tear gas fail to disperse the crowds, guns are drawn and shots are fired. Civil unrest spreads like wildfire. The Harlem riots would continue for several nights over that July weekend and into the following week, resulting in millions of dollars in damage and nearly 500 arrests. The city and the authorities are in shock, and it's only the beginning. Race riots would follow in Rochester, Jersey, Chicago, and Philadelphia in 1964 alone, before erupting into many more American cities in the following years. As law enforcement fights to stay in control, the intel provided by undercover agents, men like Ray Wood, become more and more essential. But as it turns out, Ray's role requires him to do more than just leak information. According to his deathbed confession, the NYPD wanted him to cross other moral lines. Specifically, they want him to be instrumental in publicly damaging these activist groups. He's to help bring them down. This will include enticing certain individuals to commit felonies that could lead to their arrest and disgrace. But if the NYPD believe that the arrest of a handful of influential Black leaders will halt the civil rights movement, they're sorely mistaken. Amidst the chaos of the race riots and the arrests of hundreds of Black men and women, there's one man in New York who the police and FBI are keeping a particularly close watch on. Civil rights leader and firebrand Malcolm X. By the time Ray Wood is undercover at CORE, Malcolm X is at the height of his fame. The 38-year-old activist and Muslim spiritual leader is a highly controversial figure. Adored by his followers, but hated by his enemies. For years now, he's been at odds with peaceful protest factions of the civil rights movement. His critics view him as a dangerous militant, advocating a violent revolution. Many others, however, idolize him as a hero. As a Black nationalist, they believe that Malcolm X is saying exactly what needs to be heard. He advocates resistance, encourages Black power and civil autonomy, and promises to fight for freedom and justice by whatever means necessary. Needless to say, Malcolm X is under constant surveillance from the FBI. But recently, he's gained a new enemy, his former brothers in the Nation of Islam are bitter and angry that he's left the organization. They now view him as a traitor. There are those who swear they'll get revenge. I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. 
I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. No master but duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. To some, it seems as if Malcolm X's time is running out. He receives death threats on an almost daily basis, and his security team grows more anxious by the second. They are on constant alert. Where will the next attempt on his life come from? White supremacists? Neo-Nazis? The vengeful Nation of Islam? Or even perhaps the FBI? Against this backdrop of momentous civil unrest, Ray Wood works diligently as an undercover agent for the NYPD. As the months pass, he successfully infiltrates a growing number of civil rights groups, including those with more radical agendas. Everywhere he goes, he convinces activists that he's one of them. He protests on picket lines, fights police officers, spends weeks sleeping rough on the streets of Harlem, and even gets arrested on several occasions. What's more, he's well-liked. Ray enjoys drinking, smoking, and playing sports with the boys while at night, he makes a name for himself as an irresistible ladies' man. Everyone Ray Wood meets is fooled by his masterclass in acting but it's not hard to wonder how he truly feels or how his conscience copes with the double existence he leads. Does Ray sympathize with the cause? Does he enjoy the rebellious lifestyle of an activist? And does he feel a pang of guilt when he betrays his so-called friends? Or does the young detective simply view his undercover work as a necessary part of the job, doing his bit to protect and serve? It's impossible to know. Wherever Ray's sympathies really lie, the time will soon come when he has to pick a side. In just a few months, his loyalty will be put to the test and the whole world will find out who Ray Wood really is. It's January, 1965 and 32-year-old Ray Wood has just been assigned his biggest job yet. His mission is to lure three activists into committing an act of terror. The male targets aren't just minor rebels or part-time protesters either. They're all well-connected individuals who have been on the FBI's watch list for months. The first man in the trio is 28-year-old Robert Steele Collier. Collier is a committed, Castro-loving communist and respected leader of the Black Liberation Front a far-left militant group. The FBI are keen to put Collier behind bars as soon as possible. But while Collier is an important target to them, 
Some suspect it's the two other men who could be of most significance. You see, 22-year-old Khalil Syed and 32-year-old Walter Bowe are both senior members of Malcolm X's personal security team. If police catch Syed and Bo in an act of terror, they'll be arrested and imprisoned. With Malcolm X's life under constant threat, an obvious consequence of their arrest would be to leave the controversial figure vulnerable to attack. An interesting coincidence, to say the least. The cold, dark weeks of January pass, and as expected, Ray Wood convinces Collier, Syed, and Bo of his activist credentials. But he knows he's not there to make friends. His job is to set these three men up for arrest. And so, following orders from above, Ray devises a plan which is sure to catapult the men to international infamy and almost certainly result in their imprisonment. Ray suggests that they should strike at the very symbol of American freedom. He suggests they blow up the Statue of Liberty. It's not clear how Ray convinces Collier, Syed, and Bo to engage in such a reckless act of terror. Rumor has it, it's a plot he's been suggesting to other groups for a while. But it seems this time he's finally successful. In January 1965, the four begin planning the attack. First, the men pay a visit to the famous tourist attraction. It's imperative that they learn everything they can about the structure. On a clear, frosty January morning, Ray, Collier, Syed, and Bo take the ferry across to Staten Island. As the sun rises behind the city, the men join the crowd gathered to marvel at the 300-foot monument. But as soon as they arrive, they're struck by the sheer volume of people. Thousands of excited tourists are queuing beneath the statue, climbing up its steep stone steps and waving triumphantly from the top. Not to mention the rows upon rows of dedicated security guards. If the four men are to pull off this plot, they'll need to pick a day when the attraction is closed or before visiting hours begin. They don't intend to commit mass murder. The symbolism of the act alone will send shockwaves across the nation. Rather than visit the statue every day and risk drawing attention to themselves, Bo purchases a cheap replica of the monument. He and his three colleagues pour over it night and day. And then they see it. On the statue's head, there's a locked door. If the men break this lock, they'll have unlimited access inside the 42-foot torch-bearing arm. It's the perfect target for their crime. At the end of her outstretched arm, Lady Liberty holds aloft the torch of enlightenment, possibly the most iconic symbol of freedom on the planet. A gross irony, perhaps, given the grim reality of life on the impoverished streets of 1960s New York City, where segregation, inequality, and political oppression dominate. Collier, Syed, and Bo hope that their actions will cause this 80-year-old, 225-ton icon of American liberation to come crashing down. What Ray Wood truly hopes for is anyone's guess. Although their plan is now set in motion, Ray and his new friends still have two crucial problems to solve. 
Firstly, the illegal purchase of explosives without drawing attention to themselves. And secondly, how to smuggle dozens of sticks of dynamite into the heavily guarded Statue of Liberty. These answers come to them in the form of a striking Canadian woman, a 26-year-old, six-foot-tall blonde by the name of Michelle Duclos. Duclos is a fellow freedom fighter herself as a member of Rassemblement pour l'Independence Nationale, a separatist group who wants to secure Quebec's release from Canada. Duclos is more than happy to assist Ray Wood and his so-called friends in their daring mission. Duclos agrees to supply the explosives herself as she regularly travels to New York on business. With their smuggler secured and their ammunition purchased, the men iron out the remaining details of their plan. It's set to take place in a matter of days on February 16th, 1965. Collier and Ray will meet Duclos in a quiet parking lot in New York where she'll hand over the explosives. For reasons which aren't made clear, it's decided that Syed and Beau will play no part in the mission itself. Syed is to spend the day working in his father's store, while Beau will lay low in his New York home. Perhaps these two men naively hope that their lack of direct participation will protect them from the law should things turn south. As vital members of Malcolm X's security team, they have an obligation to stay out of trouble. Then again, perhaps it's Ray's suggestion. With just Collier and himself left to carry out the plan, the undercover detective can better control the outcome. So after weeks of careful planning, the stage is finally set. Collier, Syed, and Bo can almost taste victory. What could possibly go wrong? The answer is, of course, Ray Wood. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ray has played his part as a double agent phenomenally. Collier, Syed, and Bo have no idea that he's working for the NYPD and they trust him with their lives. So far, everything has gone to plan. All that's left for Ray and the NYPD to do is close the net. The date is set. The explosives are en route. If Ray messes up now, Collier could still carry out the attack. And so late in the evening of February 15th, as Michelle Duclos loads 30 sticks of dynamite into her car, the FBI and the NYPD prepare their ambush. Under the cold blanket of a wintry night, Michelle Duclos drives the 500 miles south from Quebec to New York. In the trunk of her car is a paint box filled with 30 sticks of deadly dynamite, each one individually wrapped in pages from a French-language newspaper. Minutes before dawn on February 16th, Duclos pulls into a vacant parking lot in Riverdale, New York. She shuts off the engine and waits. As the pale sun rises over the wealthy neighborhood, Duclos steps out onto the icy sidewalk. She hurries to a nearby hotel and makes the planned call to Collier and Ray. But as she shelters from the biting cold outside, Duclos is totally unaware that she's being watched. 
the FBI have been tailing her the whole way. Now, they wait patiently in the empty parking lot, hidden out of sight, and ready to pounce on the man who's about to walk straight into their trap. A few hours later, a Chevy pulls up in the same Riverdale street. At its wheel is Ray Wood, and next to him is Collier. For Collier, this is a moment of excitement. He believes that he's about to collect weapons which will topple the nation's pride and joy and rocket the Black Liberation Front to international fame. Ray parks the car and Collier jumps out, blood rushing and adrenaline pumping. He makes his way over to the shrubbery at the side of the parking lot where he finds the hidden box of dynamite. Picking it up carefully so as not to disturb the explosives inside, Collier walks back to the Chevy. He tries to hand the ammunition over to Ray, but Ray instructs him to leave it on the front seat. The two men prepare to drive away. Part one of their mission is accomplished. But then, all of a sudden, the quiet morning street is suddenly transformed by a chaotic frenzy of action. Without warning, swarms of FBI and NYPD agents jump out from their hiding places. Aiming loaded guns, they rush towards Collier, shouting at him not to move an inch. In a matter of seconds, agents surround Collier, Ray Wood, and the unopened box of explosives. In horror, Collier stops dead in his tracks and raises his hands into the air. Collier stares around the icy parking lot in bewilderment as he notices the flashing lights of squad cars and the team of agents all wearing bomb-proof vests and masks. He must wonder, how? How could they possibly know? The crowd of agents quickly split in two. Those wearing the bomb-proof vests take hold of the box of dynamite and carefully carry it away. The remaining officers clamp handcuffs onto Collier and place him under arrest. As they march him to a waiting squad car, Collier looks desperately to his accomplice, Ray Wood. Ray isn't handcuffed. He isn't even arrested. He just stands there, impassive. Does Collier realize he's been betrayed by his friend? That he's been set up? If not, he won't have to wait long to find out. The rest of the day of February 16th is spent finding Michelle Duclos, Khalil Syed, and Walter Bow. Thanks to Ray, the NYPD already know their various locations, so it doesn't take long for each of them to be placed under arrest. Within a matter of days, the three felons will be charged with conspiring to destroy government property. At their trial, Ray's role as a double agent becomes clear as he testifies against his former friends. Thanks to Ray's undercover work, Collier, Syed, and Bo are all locked away for a maximum of 10 years and charged with a hefty $10,000 fine. As for Duclos, she's given a three-month prison sentence and receives a permanent ban from re-entering the U.S. The failed Statue of Liberty plot is a huge victory for the NYPD. Along with Ray Wood, they are hailed as heroes who have prevented a terrorist attack. Few could suspect that government agencies like the FBI may have deliberately set up the plot in order to entrap a few troublesome activists. And certainly, no one could predict the terrible consequences that are about to unfold.
While Collier, Syed, Beau, and Duclos are thrown into jail and branded terrorist, Ray Wood's life changes. Almost overnight, he becomes a minor celebrity. His bosses at the NYPD reward him on the spot, gifting him a pay raise of $2,000 and promoting him to a third grade detective. As a result, the press circles Ray like vultures, trying to snap his photograph, pleading for interviews, and lauding him as an American hero. The New York Times even publishes a special article about Ray's exemplary undercover work. It's released on February 17th, just one day after the crime. But despite this heroic reception, Ray Wood is unable to bask in his moment of glory. He hardly interacts with journalists, and when he does, it's as though he's trying to deflect the shower of praise. During one interview, he simply remarks, I just tried to do my best. Though the NYPD tries to protect his identity and only a partial photo is printed, his alias, Ray Woodall, is splashed across the papers. Ray, for one, is ecstatic. Surely this means his cover is blown and his days working undercover are finally over. Little does he know the government has one more job for him, a task which will haunt him until his dying day. It's easy to imagine the fear Malcolm X feels when he hears that two of his top security guards are locked behind bars, especially in light of recent situations. In the early hours of February 14th, while Malcolm, his wife Betty, and their four daughters were peacefully sleeping, firebombs were thrown at their home in Queens. Flames consumed every inch of the two-bedroom house. Thankfully, the young family managed to make it out alive and unharmed, but they lost almost everything as their home was burned to the ground. It's not clear who's responsible for this attack. Although many reports speculate that the Nation of Islam had some involvement, bitter and twisted about Malcolm X's alleged betrayal. As it turns out, the fire at his house is only the latest in a series of increasing threats on his life. Betty recently received a telephone call, informing her that her husband is as good as dead. And newspapers, such as the Muslim journal, Muhammad Speaks, have published cartoons illustrating his execution. There's even been a plot to wire a live bomb to his car. It seems as though the writing's on the wall. Surely it will only be a matter of time until someone succeeds in killing the civil rights leader. Malcolm X even realizes that his days are numbered. With his enemies circling, whether white supremacists, the Nation of Islam, or even the FBI, he ominously remarks, I live like a man who's dead already. It won't be long until his sinister prophecy comes true. It's no longer a case of if Malcolm X will die. It's a question of when and who will pull the trigger. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. Part two of the Malcolm X conspiracy sees Ray Wood take a front row seat a witness to history as the renowned civil rights leader is gunned down in full view of 400 witnesses. What follows next is a whirlwind investigation and a highly suspect criminal trial. The truth of what really took place that day
will be shrouded in mystery for decades until the dying words of Ray Wood are finally revealed. Ray's deathbed confession has the power to rewrite history, help overturn a wrongful conviction, and expose government involvement in an American tragedy. But will it finally answer the question of who really killed Malcolm X? Find out next time on Deathbed Confessions. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders, join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify.